Before we start this morning, I just wanted to uh, say a word of encouragement. Um, this is the, I think without question, the most important time of the year in terms of the Christian calendar. We're just six days away from Good Friday, um, which is the reason we're here and the reason we can sing, and that is the death of Jesus and, of course, his resurrection three days later. And um, now it's a, a season, a time in which not only for you to refresh yourself in what God did for you, but also a time to gather others to let them hear the message too. So um, I would just encourage you um, to invite your neighbors to come to the walkthrough of the, of the um, experiencing the passion on Friday. It's, it's a hands-on way of connecting with what Jesus did. Um, so invite them. Even if you've gone through it before and you, you're not planning on doing it, invite them to come on a good Friday and, and do that. That's 6 to 8.30. And then, and then also Sunday morning, um, Easter services. Our, our, our service will be um, very oriented towards those who do not believe because that's the time in which uh, unbelievers or twice a year believers come in. And so um, we'd really just like them to hear the message of, of the gospel, which, which is so much bigger than many of us think. And just wanting people to taste and know um, the immeasurable greatness of God's work. So um, there are little cards back on the little round kiosk that say, Why God? Um, it's not too hard to hand that to a, to a neighbor and say, Hey, uh, join us on Easter. And um, so please uh, use this opportunity to, to reach out. We want people to hear the life-changing message of, of the gospel. I'm going to pray again and then we'll start. Father, I am so grateful for for the privilege of, of worship and being able to gather here together and to be reminded of the most important thing in life, um, the very thing that fills the soul and satisfies the spirit, um, that gives us hope that lasts um, beyond this life, beyond the next paycheck or beyond um, the homes that we own, something that is eternal and tangible and, and wonderful and we just ask that in these moments that you would enable us to drink deeply from the waters of your truth in a way that refreshes and renews and strengthens, that converts and opens eyes. So we just ask, Lord, please just do your work and, and show us your love. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This, uh, this morning is family communion, and we do it four times a year, um, in part because we want um, families to, to experience uh, life together in the church as well as just going to their classroom. So this is one of those days. And because of that, um, I wanted to start a bit more on a, on a kid-friendly note this morning. Um, I think without question, the most played animated movie in the Deckard household ever is uh, Finding Nemo. And that's no exaggeration. Uh, in large part because of my youngest son. A um, year and a half ago, Thanksgiving break, actually he doesn't have a break because he's always on break and he doesn't have school yet. But he just wanted to watch that movie and that movie only, Finding Nemo. I think we probably watched it 20 times. Now, I didn't watch it all 20 times, but he just wanted to watch Finding Nemo. And one of the great things about um, that particular movie, which has, by the way, nothing to do with this message, is that it has no bad words in it. Um, and that's a huge thing for my youngest son. That's like the, the unpardonable sin is to say a bad word. Now, I don't know how, how he got that in his brain, but for some reason, that's like murder to him, bad words. In fact, he pronounces it bad woods because he, he can't say ours yet, bad woods. Does it have bad woods in it? And uh, I think if he was to 
to write his own Ten Commandments, the very first commandment would be, thou shalt not say bad words. You know, that's, that's my, my youngest, youngest son. Um, in particular, uh, the queen mother of all swear words in his vocabulary that begins with the letter between E and G is F-A-T. Which is the word that gets every parent in trouble in a grocery line. When he says, hey, mom, there's a f- person. Anyway, this movie does not have that word in it, thankfully. Um, Finding Nemo. If you've seen it, it's an amazing story and actually a great allegory for the gospel. Um, because in it, um, we see a father going at great lengths to rescue his lost son. So, with that in mind, and this isn't for you adults, this is for the kids, so if you think this is cheesy, I don't care. This is for them. Um, Here is a collage of what Marty, the clownfish, had to go through to save his son Nemo. by blowing them up. Golly, that's amazing. And then dive thousands of feet straight, straight down, down into the dock. It's like wicked dock down there. You can't see a thing. How's it going, Bob? And the only thing I can see down there is the knife in this big, horrible creature with razor sharp teeth. Nice barrier, man. And then he has to blast his way out of the sea. Searching the ocean for days on the East Australian current. Which means that he may be on his way here right now. That should have been Sydney Harbor in a matter of days. I mean, it sounds like this guy's gonna stop at nothing. Nothing till he finds his son. I'm sure hope he makes it. There's one dedicated father, if you ask me. What? What is it? Your dad's been fighting the entire ocean looking for you. My father? Really? Really? Oh, yeah. He's travelled hundreds of miles. He's been battling sharks and jellyfish, sharks? all sorts of... That can't be him. Are you sure? What was his name? Uh, some sort of sport fish or something. Tuna? Uh, trout? Marlin? That's it. Marlin, the little clownfish from the reef. It's my dad! He took on a shark! I heard he took on three. Three? Three? One of the things that it's hard to hear with the dialogue because of the sound is that everybody in the ocean, the swordfish and the crabs, are all talking about the amazing dedication of this father looking for his son. And um, if you were to measure a person's love by how far they will go to reclaim what they love, 
then you'd have to conclude that Marty the Clownfish deeply loved his son. And in the end of the movie, you get there and he, he and his son are reunited. It was actually kind of a tearful event for me the first time. I used to think my dad was weird because he could cry on a drop of a hat over weird things. And I think, Dad, why are you crying? But now I've found that I've inherited that same trait. Um, <laughs> to cry on the drop of a hat. It's like father-son reunited. It just hit a chord within me. You know, the Bible um, basically tells the same basic story of, of, a, uh, of God's pursuit of his wayward, lost and defiant children and tells the story of how far his love goes. Now the question, of course, is how far does it go? And that, of course, brings us to this week because this whole week is all about the answer to that question. How far does God's love go to reclaim what's lost? And I want, in these few moments before we come to the Lord's table, to reflect on a portion of Scripture that answers that question of, so how far does God's love go? And for those of you who are Christians who already know the answer up front, don't tune it out. Because you know what? We have to hear this all the time. I am convinced. I have to hear this all the time. To be reminded of the Father's love for me. The text is found in um, Psalm 118. You might be thinking, Psalm 118, I thought we'd go to the New Testament. And it's like, no, not really, um, because a lot of the New Testament is in the Old, and Old is in the New. So I want to reflect for a few moments on a, on a psalm, Psalm uh, 118. But I want to do it through Matthew 21. So I am going to read a section from Matthew 21 that talks about um, what we celebrate and what the church remembers today, which is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day in which the church remembers and celebrates and, and reflects on the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey um, to do one thing, and that is to die. And this is the account of that according to the Gospel of Matthew. And I think you'll see in a moment, at least I hope you'll see, how it connects to, to um, Psalm 118. This is what it reads, beginning in verse 6. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees. And that's where we get the whole palm branch deal. And spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Now, here you have this group of people, many of whom are anticipating this young, charismatic, healer, teacher. And some believe him to be the coming Messiah, which the Old Testament, of course, is, uh, has been anticipating for for centuries, even millennia of time. So there's kind of a messianic buzz or electricity in the air, and they begin shouting as he rides in to Jerusalem. And the key phrase that is, I think, really important is the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as the anticipated Christ comes into Jerusalem, one of the things that they say is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there's only one place where that exact phrase is found in the Old Testament. Only one. 
that I have found. And that is it's found in Psalm 118. Here comes Jesus, and the people begin quoting Psalm 118, verse 26, where it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here we have this group of people, and they're saying or quoting Psalm 118 as Jesus rides into town, which brings us to Psalm 118. They chose to quote from a messianic psalm, which just basically means a psalm that anticipates or speaks about the coming deliverer. So that brings us back to Psalm 118. And it is an amazing, life-altering psalm, if it sinks in. One of the things you notice as you read the psalm, and I don't have time to read the entire psalm, I'm going to give you just the gist of what it says. One of the things that's striking about this song, psalm or song, is that it ends the same place it begins. It begins with a call to worship, a call to gratitude, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And right out of that, in verses 2, 3, and 4, you get this rapid-fire succession of the same basic thing, where it, like pointing a, a, a conductor's baton at different groups of people, saying, let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. So it begins with this, this call to worship the steadfast love of the Lord. That's how it begins. And at the very end of the psalm, verse 29, it concludes by saying the exact same thing. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. So what you have here is the psalm bookends, you know like bookends, beginning and the end of the row of books. It bookends this psalm with a call to worship God's steadfast love, which means everything in between is framed by that idea. This psalm was intended to show us or describe for us in poetic ways how immense God's steadfast love is. That's what the bookends do. It shows us that what he's about to speak about is God's steadfast love, his lavish, merciful, go-the-distance kind of love. So that's kind of a main point to keep in mind because what's sandwiched in between Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, is a description of how much he loves us. Now, one of the things, in addition, you'll notice if you read, and I hope you'll take the psalm home, and I hope you'll read it and come to savor it like many have. This is Martin Luther's favorite psalm, um, is that there are two voices in this psalm. There is the voice of an individual, and there is a voice of a group. Or to put it differently, there's a voice of the I, there's a lot of I, and there is the voice of the we. And I believe that those are two distinctive voices in this psalm in looking at God's steadfast love. The voice of the individual, which I want to point out, which is the most important, is the voice of someone who is suffering and under intense duress. So I'm just going to kind of quote off some of what he experiences, and perhaps you'll see the association. Is that he describes himself in verse 5 as one who's in distress. He says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. So he's feeling pressured and oppressed, stressed out, 
um, in the pressure cooker of life. That's where he is. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. That's the individual. He goes on a little bit later in verses 10, 11, and 12 to tell us the nature of that distress. And he says in three different, three different times, three different ways. He says, all nations surrounded me. And he says it again. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side, completely surrounded by the nations. They surrounded me like, like bees. Remember, step in a, in a hole of um, ground wasps and, and they just come out and they're everywhere stinging you and even if you run, they're still there. Well, three different ways he's saying I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my enemies, the nations. So he's in distress, he's surrounded and oppressed by the nations like bees, they surrounded me. And he gives us a sense, the psalmist, the individual, of just how far he felt pressed. Because uh, verse 13 says that I was pushed hard. In other words, the pressure was bearing so heavily upon me, I was pushed so hard that I was falling. You know the feeling you get when you're on the edge of something and you lose your balance and you know you're going to go in? Maybe the, the, the pebbles on the rocks down below are starting to slip over the cliff and you feel like there's no way I'm going to make it? That is the emotional state of the individual in this psalm. Distressed, surrounded by enemies, and at the point that he is feeling like he's about to fall. But then it gets even more difficult because he goes on in verse 18 to describe what God is doing to him because he says there that, that he has been severely disciplined by the Lord. The Lord has severely disciplined or chastened me, chastised me. So the picture you have to get of the individual in this psalm bookended by the steadfast love of the Lord, is someone who is being opposed not only by all the nations, mankind, but also the hand of heaven itself is pressing down upon him. So the whole world, heaven and earth, is against him. And then it kind of comes to its point in verse 22, which I believe is the key and central verse of the psalm, and its subject is key and central to the entire Bible and is key to understanding the love of God. Because that particular verse, verse 22, reads that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The first part of that tells us that the individual in the psalm was rejected, cast aside, thrown out, thrown away, discarded. Rejected. So the picture that's being painted of the individual in this psalm, stressed, surrounded by enemies, uh, to the point that he was about to fall, um, having the hand of God severely pushed down upon him to the point that he is rejected. Now, who does that remind you of? Who was in the garden saying to his disciples, my soul sorrows even to death. Or the NIV puts it, I am overwhelmed to the point of death. That's a person who is under extreme duress. Who's a person who, feeling like he's cracking under the weight 
of what he's about to do, prays, Lord, take this cup from me, as if he's about to break under the pressure of it. Who's the person who stood in court before both Roman authorities and Jewish authorities and provincial authorities, a.k.a. the nations, enemies on every side? And who's the one ultimately that faces rejection? Not just by men, but by God himself when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That should remind us of just one person. The psalm, which was written centuries before Jesus ever lived, this is a psalm of Jesus and about Jesus. To show us what he did, the distress the enemies faced, all mankind, how he felt pushed to the point of falling, with the hand of God severely against him. But the point, of course, of it all is that he wasn't rejected and experiencing all of those negative things because he did anything wrong. He did that because that was God's love pursuing his lost children, his defiant lost children. And all of us are at heart, at least before we came to Christ, defiant, even if it's in very subtle ways, wanting to determine our own destiny and future and make our own choices in life and not listen to the one who created us and loved us. But he was, in the words of Isaiah, he was a man despised and rejected of men, acquainted with sorrow and grief. But why did he do it? He was wounded for our transgressions, ours. And he was crushed for our iniquities, ours. That the Lord has laid on the individual the stone that was rejected, the iniquities of us all. And he, he died. That stone, the stone that the builders rejected, is a verse that Jesus applies to himself over and over and over again. He is the stone. This is his psalm. And it's a poetic way of describing how far God's love went to free us. And to taste and, and know the reality of that is, is a life-changing experience. Again, that you must come to over and over and over again because it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that God's love is enduring. Relentless. That's, a, that's what this psalm's about. But on the other hand, on the hopeful side, the second part of that verse that says that the stone that the builders rejected ironically, has become the cornerstone, which is the foundation stone of something brand new. That the very one who's rejected so that we can be accepted becomes the basis of new life, of a whole new people that would be called the church, and even a whole new creation, new heavens and new earth, which we still await. But it all finds its basis in this individual in Psalm 118, the cornerstone, the foundation of new life for you and for me, not just in the future, but right now, to taste and know that the Lord is good now is life. And to know that we have a, f a hope that is immeasurable in scope and magnitude, 
all because of the individual that was rejected and now made the cornerstone. All spoken centuries before Jesus ever came. So this psalm really is about not only the demise of Jesus, but also the deliverance of Jesus, and not just about his death, but also his resurrection. Not just about his rejection, but about his foundation as the newness of life. That's what the psalm's about. You can see why. I think it's interesting that on the day that Jesus rode in, I think the crowd, unbeknownst to them, were saying the words of a psalm that talked about him being rejected. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? Simple reason? Because his steadfast love endures forever. Can't get away from it. If you're his child, can't get away from it. It will pursue you, it will hunt you down, it will open your eyes, and you will trust in it some level, and hopefully deeper and deeper as life goes on. And you know that second voice in the psalm? I told you there's an individual voice, the I that's under distress and so forth. The we, that's us. Because the we portions of the psalm go like this. Uh, Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Or the very statement here picked up in Matthew chapter 21 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is spoken by the we, because right after it, it says, we bless you. We bless you, the one who's come for us, was rejected for us. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Or the Lord is God. This is also from Psalm 118. Right after that, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine on us through the stone that was rejected. It's precisely because of that that we're able to bless the Lord and and be able to give thanks to the Lord because he is good and his love does endure forever. That's what this psalm ultimately is supposed to do to the human heart in describing how deep God's steadfast love goes is to call forth a sense of genuine and deep gratitude and wonder and humility that God would love us that much. That's why it starts and ends the same way. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good steadfast love endures forever. And I believe, I hold my heart, that a genuine belief in that truth is life-altering. It humbles, it encourages, it strengthens. I didn't use this in the first service, but I'll use it. I made a huge mistake with my dad when I was 17 years old. I didn't have a car of my own, so he graciously lent me his. It's a Chevy 1979. He had all of his files in the back under a a little camper shell. And I decided one night after I dropped off my date at home that I'd do something massively masculine and peel out in my girlfriend's driveway. (laughs) And I did. Not a very good driver because I completely lost control. Almost hit a telephone pole and then in trying to avert the telephone pole, ran over a neighbor's fence. So my, there's a broken fence, almost hit a telephone pole. My dad's uh, files were completely scattered and all out of whack in the back of the truck, and I had hit a few fence posts. Now, there's something in all of us that when we feel like we've made a major mistake, we doubt the love of the one who loves us. And I remember being deeply afraid, not only that my dad would be angry, which he was, 
but somehow doubted the fact that he would love me the same. But you know how humbling it is to hear the words of somebody that you just offended say, Dan, Danny, you're my son. And your mistakes aren't going to change that, ever. And the, the moment of realizing that someone loves you despite you is so humbling, but so wonderful. Uh, I had a walk with one of my children, I won't tell you who, this last week. And in a little walk, my child asked me, so dad, when we screw up in the Christian life, do we have to rededicate our lives to the Lord so that he loves us again? And I think my answer, paraphrase, is like, absolutely not. If you're his, then he has always loved you. And your little screw-ups in life is never going to change that. And that's why the love, steadfast love of God has been and will always be the stronghold for the Christian life. Because it doesn't come to us based upon our flawless performance. It met us when we were lost, chased us down, and not just chased us down, but died for us. And if he died for us, if that's how deep his love goes, then when we as, as, as believers make mistakes, you know, that's not going to change the nature of things. You'll always be his. And, uh, and I pray that you know that in your heart and soul, because that love is better than life. So when you come to the Lord's table this morning, I just hope that you'll think about the single verse. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For steadfast love endures forever. And that his, uh, his love went all the, dis- all the way down um, into the, the mire of our sinfulness and loved us anyway. And, and that's what we celebrate when you take the bread. It's, it's the body of Christ, the rejected stone. When you drink the cup, it's, it's a symbol of his death. And that's how far his love has gone for us. Um, so if you're a follower of Christ this morning, even if you're visiting, you're welcome to come to the table and, um, and be reminded of, of the love of God for sinful people. And if you're not, we would just simply ask that you avoid the table. This is for followers. I mean, its meaning is, is for followers. Um, but come and let's worship together and give thanks to the Lord because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. As I pray, if the elders could come up and and we'll serve you uh, as the music plays. Father, I just pray in these moments that we have that you would do what only your spirit can do. Um, That you would bring the truth of all that you have done for flawed, broken people. And just impress it so deep that we're able to partake in a very free and liberating way, knowing, knowing we stand in the the immensity of our our God's love who has paid the price at your own expense. So please just, Lord, minister to us now and, and if there are people who are discouraged, give them encouragement in your love. If there are people who find themselves completely in doubt because they are living lives of, of flawed character, I pray that you take away those doubts by your love and give them strength to live obediently. Lord, more than anything, we just want to come to the, to the table and know your love. And we pray this in, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.